And now, The Federal Drive with Tom Temin, sponsored by GEHA. Hello, and thanks for joining us on this Friday, December 8th, 2023, seven minutes past the hour. I'm Tom Temin. Our producers are Eric White and Peter Masurlian. Our digital editors, Daisy Thornton and Darris Lauderdale. Coming up in this hour of The Federal Drive, why cloud computing has little to do with money saving. Plus, an astronaut turned NASA executive calls it a career. Those stories and much more ahead during this hour of The Federal Drive. But first, some federal employees take remote working to a whole new level, holding government jobs while living overseas. They're called domestic employees teleworking overseas, or DITOs. Most of them are the spouses of military or foreign service officers, and DITOs got a raise this year after Congress approved a locality pay equivalent. Well, now the State Department is recognizing one of its employees for her advocacy on the pay issue. Federal News Network's Jory Heckman spoke with the Congressional Advisor for the Bureau of International Affairs, Michelle Neeland. Finding out about the recognition felt just like a huge honor and also validation of the work that my colleagues and I were doing. You know, I have to say, just working on the civil service Dedo pay equity campaign was really fulfilling in and of itself, but then also being recognized on top of that. And I received an award called the Eleanor Tragen Award, which is administered by the DACOR Organization of Foreign Affairs Professionals. And just receiving that validation for what we did from the sort of people senior to me in this field, and then also State Department celebrating that win was really meaningful. And being recognized by the Secretary of State, who recorded a congratulatory video for us. It was a very intimate ceremony, but it also felt very elegant. And it was really cool to just feel honored along with the other winners who had done so much wonderful volunteer work at their posts. Yeah. And when we initially did the story, we heard from the State Department some enthusiasm that this was crossing the line, the finish line legislatively in that NDAA. From your perspective on things, what has the reaction been from the State Department and and your colleagues now that this is the law of the land and that this pay equity is now in the books? I've heard a lot of amazement from people, which I understand because it's no easy feat to pass legislation in only one year from start to finish. So we did work really, really hard, but also other factors play into that success, like the timing of our effort. I think it was the right time, a healthy dose of luck, and then a lot of people cooperating toward that. And I have to say, you know, everybody who I introduced this pay inequity too across State Department, as soon as they learned more about it, immediately said, well, how could we fix that? That doesn't sound right. So I did not encounter anybody who wanted to keep the status quo as it was. So that was encouraging to me. There were a few people who wondered whether it could be fixed and how we would do that, but we were able to move toward a solution as our discussions developed and as our research developed. And I just wanted to add kind of as an addendum to your first question too, it wasn't until my trip back to receive the award this week that I saw copies of my nominations and I saw that 40 of my peers, including outside of the State Department, co-nominated me for this particular award, which I am really touched and amazed by. I had no idea it was that big of a list, but it just goes to show how many people are personally touched by this 
win because as soon as it went into effect, people's paid checks were adjusted and they started receiving equitable pay to their peers and to what they were making when they were working domestically. So it hit and impacted families immediately, which made people, I think, really emotional and just grateful that we were able to succeed because this was an issue that had persisted since 2009. So I guess 14 years and the people who had been the civil service spouses who had been working that whole time from post had accumulative losses, which impacted their retirement and their TSP. So there's nothing that can be done about those prior losses, but at the very least, as of the implementation of this legislation, as of this year, 2023, people are now receiving fair pay. And it's really incentivizing this domestic employees teleworking from overseas program, which has been a lifeline for spouses of foreign affairs and military officers who are stationed abroad. As far as the visibility piece of things, I think that's key because I think, candidly, I didn't know about this until you reached out to our team on this issue. And that seems like a very common reaction to this problem that you brought to people's attention. Recognizing that, have you seen the State Department or folks such as yourself kind of raise that visibility to other people, other people who might want to be dettos, letting them know that, hey, this program exists and more significantly, it's more worth your while now that there is this pay equity uh, in place. I think the program is still a hidden gem. People are finding out about it more and more, especially those people like in my situation who are spouses of foreign affairs or military officers. I will say that it's still relatively hard to secure a dedo position um, from what I can see. It's easiest to set one up if you've already been working with your office for a while, ideally domestically in person in the same area so that you've had time to onboard and meet everybody and kind of learn your portfolio. Once you're well known in your office, it's more easy to have a remote work agreement, which is essentially what this is approved. And I think that's probably the case in the private sector as well. But it's not impossible because I've also heard of people who have been hired as dettos right off the bat after they've interviewed for a job they just found on USA Jobs. It's always worth a try. I'm just applying and explaining your situation and seeing how remote work friendly your office is. But like I said, it's really been a lifeline for people in my situation who we have professional skills and education, and we'd really like some continuity in our careers and to be able to keep sophisticated jobs going. When we have a lot of breaks in our careers, like what happened historically before the Dedo program, it's harder to work in areas that we really are passionate about and to work at higher levels. Obviously, the Foreign Service, military spouses, these are the populations where dettos have been a little more common, a little more part of the culture. Now that we're kind of in the situation where the pay equity is resolved, do you hear of other agencies beyond those two big ones where there's efforts to get this off the ground? We heard from some people from SSA testifying on Capitol Hill that they're trying to do something there. But what are you hearing from those other agencies? 
You know, I collaborate with military spouses as well, and this issue is also near and dear to their hearts. And earlier, I believe it was this year, there was an executive order passed asking all agencies to come up with a DEDO policy. So I think that might be what you're referring to that came up in that hearing with SSA. I think all agencies have been asked to define what's allowable for their agency when it comes to the DEDO program. I know State Department took the lead on establishing the program and helps give guidance, but other agencies need to um, kind of adapt it or make it work for their own people. So I know that there are DEDOs from all over federal government, from the small agencies to the big ones, and it's only been growing in popularity. You were saying in your speech the other day that eligible family members are just a population that the unemployment and the underemployment remains quite high for them. This DETO program, now that this pay equity is established, you know, it's kind of a mutually beneficial type arrangement. I was wondering if you could maybe expand on that a little bit more, how this is seemingly a a win-win for federal agencies to tap into this labor force and these people to kind of find uh, careers, recognizing it's hard to find careers when you're a foreign service spouse. You know, State Department has dug into our data for DETOs and has found that these employees have served an average of 14 years in the department. And we have specialized skills and training that make us valuable to our offices. So by bringing our federal jobs with us abroad, that allows for continuity in our careers that our predecessors never had. I actually think that foreign affairs and military spouses are the federal government's greatest untapped resource. Over half of spouses of foreign service officers are unemployed, like you mentioned, and many others are underemployed. And this is a population that's just ready to take on federal work. So I think we could do a lot more in that space as a federal government. Michelle Neeland, Congressional Advisor for the Bureau of International Affairs at the State Department, speaking with Federal News Network's Jory Heckman. Check out Jory's story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Still to come, an astronaut turned NASA executive calls it a career. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Tammen here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Tammen here on Federal News Network. In 38 years at NASA, my next guest has done lots of things. As an astronaut, he flew three space missions, commanding two of them. He oversaw retirement of the space shuttle, and he rose to associate administrator, the number three ranking person at NASA. Now Bob Cabana is turning in his badge in retirement. He joins me now for a retrospective. Mr. Cabana, good to have you with us. Good to be with you, Tom. Is it safe to say that it's unusual for someone who was an operational type of person, actual astronaut, to rise into the managerial ranks this high at NASA? No, we actually had uh, Admiral Dick Truly rise to be NASA Administrator. And uh, so Charlie Bolden, NASA Administrator, also uh, an astronaut. So we've had a number of uh, astronauts in senior leadership positions at NASA. Could that be one reason that NASA has consistently high scores in the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey is because the mission and the idea of what you're actually doing stays high in the ranks of leadership as opposed to management from some sort of an academic standpoint or a business standpoint. I think uh, there's some truth to that. My belief is we're number one on the employee viewpoint survey 11 years in a row because of the mission that we have. We have a meaningful mission that's really important, not just to our nation, but for humanity. But 
more importantly, I, I believe it's how we treat our people. Uh, we have what we call a NASA family, and we really look after our team and, uh, and one another in creating that environment along with the mission, being focused on doing something that's really important where everybody has a role to play. It makes it a little easier to be the best. Sure. And I like to think of people in terms of cohorts sometimes, because in the coverage we've been doing and what I've been covering for 30 years, you know, in the federal government, you have 1102s, you know, say contracting officers. That's a cohort or people that are CIOs. Mm -hmm. One of the rarer or more rarefied cohorts is people that have flown in space. And I don't know how (laughs) many there are of you, probably just a couple of hundred, really, when you add it all up. Is that a cohort from your standpoint? And what kind of cohortness do you have on an ongoing basis for those that did actually fly in space? Actually, it's over 500 now. Uh, as a matter of fact, uh, when I flew my first flight back in uh, 1990, I, turns out I was the 211th human to, to fly in space. But uh, we do get together uh, through various uh, professional societies, as well as uh, we have an annual astronaut reunion that usually takes place down here in Houston uh, in the December timeframe every other year. Uh, the uh, Association of Space Explorers, many of us are members of that. They have an annual Congress uh, where we get together, and that's international, not just uh, U.S. astronaut uh, reunion as it is here in Houston. So, um, yeah, absolutely. We get together, and, you know, I think all the astronauts, uh, they're they're concerned about the future. They want to see us uh, take care of our planet. They want us to see us continue to explore and expand uh, beyond our home planet. And I've always wondered, you know, someone having flown in space, do you feel that it changed you in some way? I've always been a little disappointed with how reticent like Neil Armstrong was about his experience and being the first man on the moon is, you know, no mean thing. And yet he didn't talk about it much and was reticent about what psychological or perspective changes it might have produced. So my question is, does it change a person to have flown in space, even if not to the moon? Well, I think it, uh, it definitely offers you a different perspective on our, on our planet. And uh, Neil was one of the finest gentlemen I've ever known. Uh, more than an astronaut, he was a, uh, a test pilot, and, uh, and he loved being a professor and teaching and sharing his knowledge. But uh, I think from an astronaut's perspective, one of the things that stands out most when you look down on the Earth from low Earth orbit is the the fragility of our home planet. When you see the atmosphere, this thin little hazy line that uh, is protecting us from that harsh void of space, it looks kind of fragile. The other thing that you notice is uh, you don't see the boundaries between countries. You just see this as spaceship Earth, this one planet that we all live on that we have to take care of. uh, And I I think that's really important. You see, you know, back when the uh, rainforest was being burned off, you could see the the plumes from all the fires. Uh, It's just, it gives you a unique perspective. That overview effect that people talk about is real. I just believe that, you know, we need to learn to work together to take care of our home planet and to uh, ensure that uh, we have a sustainable future. We're speaking with Bob Cabana. He's Associate Administrator of NASA, retiring at the end of December. And what was your decision process for staying with the agency after retiring from flight? Because people do go on to a lot of other things. You, as you mentioned, a few others have stayed with NASA. What was your motivation? 
Absolutely. Well, uh, so first off, um, the first 15 years of my 38 years at NASA was an, as an active duty Marine. Being selected to be an astronaut, about half the astronaut corps is active duty military, and then NASA reimburses DOD for our pay and allowances. And uh, I was a colonel, an 06 in the Marine Corps, and approaching my 30-year mandatory retirement, uh, being a general officer. And I'd had offers to do a lot of different things. But uh, at that time, I was working as the uh, manager for international operations for the space station program. And I wanted to see that through. I wanted to see us uh, continue to uh, build the International Space Station, see it to, through to completion, to be part of all the amazing things that NASA was doing. And I felt that I could do that best by staying with NASA. So I retired from the Marine Corps and uh, moved into the senior executive service in, in a leadership position. And then, you know, continually got asked to take on positions of greater responsibility. And at the top, we mentioned you were overseeing the retirement of the space shuttle program, and a lot of us can remember it from its inception to its retirement. And what's involved in ending a program? Because there's a lot of programmatic money and administrative process connected with a program like that, but there's also a lot of physical infrastructure. Absolutely. So at the time the shuttle program ended, I was the director of the Kennedy Space Center in uh, Florida. And where the space shuttles, of course, were processed and uh, launched and recovered and got ready for flight again. So I wasn't overseeing the entire retirement of the shuttle program that was uh, done via the uh, shuttle program manager. But transitioning the Kennedy Space Center uh, to the future, uh, that was that was huge. So ensuring that we processed, I was there for the remaining 12 shuttle missions when I got there in uh, October of 2008. The last shuttle flew in July of 2011. And I, I uh, had a, an awesome team, and we worked extremely hard to make sure that the last mission was flown as safely as could possibly be done. And it was probably one of the cleanest flights that we had. So keeping the team motivated to continue to do well knowing that they weren't going to have a job when the program ended. We went from a workforce of 15,000 down to 7,500 in two years. When the space shuttle Atlantis landed in July 2011, that was on a Thursday. On Friday, the very next day, 2,000 contractors got pink slips and walked out the door, but yet they performed flawlessly right up to the end. That's the kind of dedication of the workforce at KSC. My guest is Bob Cabana, Associate Administrator of NASA, retiring at the end of December. I've got more questions, so we're going to have Bob stick around for the next segment, so stay with us. You're listening to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. We're speaking with Bob Cabana. He's a 38-year veteran of NASA and a Marine Corps veteran. He flew in space three times and is about to retire as NASA's associate administrator. Before the break, we were talking about retirement of the space shuttle and the sunsetting of that program. It must have caused a lot of regret to see all that engineering talent and experience walk out the door. Was there any way of preserving that knowledge and that learning? So that was a real challenge. And uh Obviously, most of the folks that uh, 
walked out the door were the technicians that actually did the hands-on labor processing the orbiters, but there was engineering workforce that uh, went also. Uh, we worked with Brevard Workforce. About a third of the folks were eligible to retire, and uh, a third of the folks found jobs elsewhere, uh, many moving outside of, uh, of Florida in order to, uh, to find work. So it was a huge challenge motivating the team and then working to help take care of them uh, afterwards. Uh, it was compounded by the fact that in 2010, the Constellation program that was uh, to replace the space shuttle had been canceled. So there was no real significant work for uh, KSC of the magnitude of the shuttle program after that. But with uh, the advent of the space launch system, SLS and uh, Orion, uh, with a future in exploration, uh, still maintaining the space station, which was all the cargo and stuff got processed at KSC. We started building back. How could we enable the resources that we have to support commercial operations? And uh, that was the path forward. The commercial crew program started with commercial cargo. So we transitioned KSC from this pure government spaceport to a multi-user spaceport, commercial and government uh, going forward. And that's where we put our effort because all the facilities at KSC were pretty much paid for by the, by the shuttle program. So we had to find, you know, we couldn't afford it all. So what, what do we need to keep to make SLS successful for our exploration program? And I can talk more about Artemis and going back to the moon. That's absolutely an amazing program we have right now. I'd like to talk about that. But from the transition point of view, it was what do we have that would enable commercial operations? And if it, if it was needed for SLS, we kept it. If it was uh, able to be used by commercial space, we kept it. If it didn't support either of those, uh, we uh, raised it and got it off our books uh, to be more affordable. But it was a, an amazing transition by the team working with the community and working together, iterating this over time to have this vision of what we could be and then make it happen. And by the way, just a personal question, do the blueprints for the space shuttle, do they still exist somewhere? Oh, I'm sure they do. And you know, I, I absolutely. Uh, and if you haven't had a chance to actually go see the, the space shuttle out at Udbar Hazy. Oh, I have, I have. Yeah. Record up there. Uh, at the Kennedy Space Center, we have the Space Shuttle Atlantis, the Space Shuttle Endeavors out at the California Science Center. They're getting ready for a brand new display of it out there that's going to be amazing. Up on uh, uh, the Intrepid up in New York, you can see Enterprise, the approach and land test vehicle. And at, uh, at Space Center Houston, uh, at the Johnson Space Center, they have a, uh, a life-size mock-up of the space shuttle mounted on top of the uh, 747 carrier aircraft, uh, shuttle carrier aircraft. It's uh, amazing to see also. And you mentioned, of course, the switch over to the commercial space port operation. And, of course, the Artemis and the next generation of moon landing is a integration effort of a number of contractors and commercial capabilities. But the architecture of that program is somewhat more complex than the Apollo program because you have, you know, space-based refueling and so forth and using the moon in a more permanent way, perhaps as a launch pad to Mars and all of this, a lot of moving parts. And they're not all under NASA's roof. They're all under contractor roofs coordinated by NASA. And so it's late. I think probably 2025 for that launch of Artemis sounds ambitious. What's your sense of how this will all come together eventually? Well, first off, uh, the Artemis program, 
Artemis is the uh, twin sister of uh, Apollo that we went to the moon with the first time in Greek mythology. And I, I think it's uh, very appropriate as we intend to put the first uh, woman in person of color on the moon. The, the Artemis program, we're going back to the moon in a sustainable way, not a two or three day camping trip like we did with, uh, with Apollo. And what we really want to do is learn how to operate away from our home planet in a sustainable way in preparations for going on to Mars. Uh, we're going to the south pole of the moon because there's water ice there. We believe tons of it. And water is uh, hydrogen fuel and oxygen to breathe so that we can utilize lunar resources for our longer stays there. We want to go for weeks at a time. But I, how we are going, it's not purely, first off, every space vehicle that's been built has been built by a contractor. It's just how do we procure them? And we're using Space Act agreements. We're using other vehicles in order to uh, procure the vehicles that we need. We're doing it in partnership with our commercial partners so that they can actually use those vehicles for commercial access to the moon also. So it's a joint international commercial industry government partnership, a consortium that's taking us back in a sustainable way that we can really make this happen and keep it to continue preparing ourselves for going on to Mars. So it, it yes, it's a huge challenge. And uh, I, I don't believe we'll see how things work out here, but uh, 25 is going to be uh, a challenge because we have to have a lander. And, and competition is good. You know, we have SpaceX working on their Starship with their uh, super heavy launch vehicle. They've flown their second test flight out of Boca Chica down in Texas. But we have also contracted with uh, Blue and their team to build a, a second lander to have dissimilar redundancy and competition. It creates uh, innovation. It also uh, helps keep costs down, but it, uh, it, it improves our industrial base as a whole. And thinking about what you mentioned about sustainability and sustained activity by people on the moon for longer periods of time than, as you put it, the camping trip of a couple days, maybe, or a few hours, then there becomes, you tell me, not just an engineering and a life sustainment engineering challenge here to keep people alive and comfortable, but what about the psychological aspect of someone, you know, waking up in the morning and, you know, by golly, you, you can't run over to sheets you know, to get coffee and a hot dog. And so maybe we need a sheets in space someday. But what about that part of it for the people that will actually participate in this? Actually, you know, the coffee is pretty darn good in space. Uh, I was, <laughs> I, I had some awesome instant Kona coffee. I, I'm a huge coffee guy. And uh, Kona coffee with a little bit of cream and sugar. And I normally drink my coffee black, but it called for eight ounces of water. And I, I'd put four ounces of hot water in it, mix it up, and had this like mini cappuccino when I was on orbit in in the morning. So yeah, I'm a coffee. Who knew? <laughs> uh, <laughs> but uh, no, I, I think that's that's the goal. Is how do we do this? How do we get all the supplies there and do it in a sustainable way uh, from a psychological point of view? You know, a, a short trip to the moon is different from. A, a trip to Mars. I think that's the challenge is when we go on to Mars with current propulsion technology, you're talking a year and a half to two years for a, a Martian mission. Uh, six to eight months to get there, six to eight months on Mars for the planets to align for another six to eight month trip home. Studies I've seen say we have to pre-stage like 20 metric tons of supplies and equipment on Mars before humans can even go there if we want to keep them alive and, and sustain them. So these are huge challenges, the reliability of the systems. And this is where the space station has just been outstanding. 
it is a superb engineering testbed to develop and prove the systems that we need uh, in a microgravity environment for crews as we uh, have these extended duration missions uh, you know, going forward. Not to mention the science and learning how the human system behaves for extended periods in a microgravity environment. We have a lot of challenges that we have to conquer. Edema of the optic nerve, swelling of the optic nerve that affects vision. Maybe it's swelling of the brain is, is what's causing this. You know, uh, bone loss, uh, you shed calcium in space. There are so many things that we need to understand better for long duration spaceflight. And one of the huge challenges is going to be the uh, radiation environment as we leave uh, low Earth orbit and the protection of the Earth's magnetosphere. And what are your personal plans after December 31st when you leave NASA? I can't believe you're just going to put your feet up and, and, and swing on a chair somewhere. So uh, you're, you're probably right, but uh, I've made a commitment to myself for six months. I'm not going to do anything except, uh, you know, uh, spend time with family. And, uh, and I, I plan to uh, climb Machu Picchu sometime next year and uh, probably take another cycling trip. I've cycled uh, across Spain and down Italy and in Andorra on the French-Spanish border. I, I need another, maybe in Eastern Europe or somewhere, but uh, I'm, I'm gonna find some way to stay engaged in, uh, in space, but I'm, it's not gonna be a full-time job. I wanna be able to have time with my grandchildren while I'm still fit enough to keep up with them. Yeah, so all that time in space and dealing with space then really helps you appreciate the Earth sounds like. Oh, absolutely. This, the Earth is truly a, a beautiful blue jewel of a planet. And what NASA does, it's really important. All the vehicles that we have orbiting the Earth, all the satellites that monitor our Earth's environment that understand the Earth's system and how it's changing so that we can accurately model it so that we know how to uh, protect it. That is so important. And I just, uh, you know, people talk about living on the moon or living on Mars, you know, Mars is an awful place to live. It's got a low atmosphere. It's got methane atmosphere. Earth is, is just beautiful, you know, and uh, there's no place else nearby that's anything like it. So we need to take care of it. Bob Cabana is Associate Administrator of NASA, retiring at the end of December. Thanks so much for joining me. Oh, thanks so much for having me, Tom. It's been a real pleasure. And we'll post this interview along with a link to more information at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Still to come, why cloud computing has little to do with saving money. This is the Federal Drive with Tom Tamman here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to the Federal Drive with Tom Tamman here on Federal News Network. The Commerce Department is going all in for software as a service, not because it's less expensive than conventional software, rather because software as a service is better and faster. For details, Federal News Network's Jason Miller spoke to Commerce's Chief Information Officer, Andre Mendez. In a very clear realization that some of the cost benefits that you're getting up front, right, have been recognized not only by the users, but also by the vendors. And so the vendors have uh, very much uh, put forth an effort to add additional functionality, add additional cost, so that from a revenue standpoint, they're not seeing major declines. Now, I think that in general, that's a good proposition, right? What we want is for the IT departments at the Department of Commerce, its bureaus, and throughout the federal government and the private sector, to stop dealing with commodity uh, stuff and dealing with the stuff that really brings value to the table. So. 
is there going to be an enormous amount of savings from migrations to the cloud? Absolutely not. Would in some, in some cases, actually you have higher expenditures? Yes, but they will come with additional functionality, additional capability that fully justifies what we're paying for. For example, in the cybersecurity arena, the software as a service that we're now deploying for, as part of our zero trust architecture is light years ahead of the functionality that we have when we talk about uh, in-house systems. So am I willing to pay a little more for that? Of course I am. Am I willing to pay a little more for that additional monitoring and the immediate use of solutions that get implemented, including patching and additional signatures for viruses and, and, and zero-day attacks that are implemented a lot faster if somebody else is doing it for everybody rather than each one of my bureaus having to do it for its own bureau? Uh, you know, if there's somebody on vacation, you know, even the silliest of things can create an environment where there's an additional amount of time between the vulnerability being disclosed, the vulnerability being patched, and of course that's ripe time for all of the individuals that also read the disclosure but have ill intentions, right? So uh, I think that the, the costs are going up potentially, but the functionality is going dramatically up. And that's even before we introduce the AI component of all of this. I'm glad you bring up the cost issue. I, I remember years ago when it was cloud first instead of cloud smart, there's all this potential for cost savings and then slowly people are realizing, okay, maybe there's a little cost savings on the front end, but not really. How do you explain that to your executives, the secretary, the deputy secretary, the assistant secretary for management that, hey, my budget needs to get a little bigger because as I go move more applications to the cloud, there's a higher cost. Is that a hard conversation to have? Uh, quite honestly, I don't think so. Yeah. I don't think so. I think that what it allows us to focus is on the functionality that is brought to the table, which is what's important, yeah. right? Uh, they never wanted to hear anything about data centers or servers or storage or networks, right? It means nothing to, to the business folks that are, that are running these agencies. What matters is functionality, right? Yeah. And then if the cost is commensurate with the functionality, there is a good buy, buy, buy solution. Now, I will tell you that we can generate enormous economies of scale by also stop doing cloud the way that we've done cloud, yeah. the way that we've done computing before, the way that we've done data centers before, uh, since the beginning of computing, right? Which is everybody gets their own silo, everybody implements their own systems, everybody has their own staffing, uh, you know, replications, and we end up spending an enormous amount of money and always being subject to the lowest common denominator, both from a security standpoint and from a functionality standpoint. With what we're doing at the, with the Zero Trust architecture, for example, with our whole e-commerce uh, solution, what we're saying is we are going to come up with an architecture that fits everybody because there's nothing, nothing specific about cybersecurity that, uh, that we need to worry about. And then create an environment where we generate those economies of scale and we also have better manageability because instead of having 13 different EDR solutions, we might have two or three. Instead of having 13 different uh, ICAM solutions, we might have two or three. It becomes a lot easier to federate and the economies of scale are absolutely uh, insane. For our small bureaus, they can benefit from all of the knowledge of the large bureaus and, and do, do implementations in a much faster way. I am a true believer in sharing talent across the bureaus that has specific subject matter expertise so that we don't have to replicate it all over every single bureau. It's just not needed and it's a waste of money. One of the key pieces when you talk about clouds and some emerging 
if you will, trend is the use of FinOps mm -hmm. or, or financial operations when it applies to cloud computing. How are you guys starting to use FinOps? How are you starting to look at, okay, what's that cost? What's our, what's our benefit? What's our savings or potential? What, what are we getting for more money? Talk a little bit about that calculation. Nowadays, it has become a lot easier to really calculate your cost of a cloud deployment. In, in earlier times, uh, it was uh, you know, a little more cloudy, so to speak. And also, the understanding, the expectation was that it was going to generate savings. That is no longer the case now. But the tools out there for calculating your cost for deploying a new system based on the number of instances, the overall processing capacity, the storage, uh, ingress and egress fees has become a lot more sophisticated. So we're able to deal with that uh, you know, in a far more exacting way. But even though we might not see the cost savings that one might expect originally, or even though there might be a somewhat of an increase in the overall cost of running a system, we have to get them to the functionality question that we've talked about yep. before, right? And so it's never really a simple scenario where you can uh, you know, apportion it just to costing, just to savings, uh, just to cost slashing, because it becomes a multivariate analysis of what are the benefits that are brought to the table. And again, with all of the hidden costs that we're talking about that are very rarely calculated, but that are nevertheless are very real. So when you start looking at how you do calculate those costs, what's the process you're going through? Is it A plus B equals C, or, or do you have some sort of approach to say, how do we, if we, let's just take the CX system as an example, you have to know, okay, what, what will that potentially cost us? What are the down cost avoidance in the down? How, how do you go through that process? What's that look like, generally speaking? So we basically have to go through some data calls. Yeah. So we went through, for example, CX, let's use that as an example. We went through a data call with the bureaus, asking them what they had deployed and what it was costing them to run. And, uh, and for the other ones that did not have a system in place, how many properties were they uh, looking at, uh, at making part of this system? And what was their overall universe of, uh, of both uh, website and mobile properties so that we could calculate how many licenses they would need for administrators, for users, uh, and for storage associated with this. And then from that came a calculation of how much money they were going to spend based on market rates. We then looked at what it would cost to basically go to the Martech, Martech, Martech stack vendors that we consider to be uh, best of breed across the entire, and that's relatively easy to establish nowadays. We told them, okay, how much is it going to cost me to get X number of licenses for this, X number of licenses for that, X number of licenses for that, storage for this, this capability, that capability, the redundancy, uh, associated with that, and so then it became a comparison. Now, is this a absolutely apples to apples comparison? Absolutely not. Mm -hmm. But the reality is that there's a mandate. Well, actually, there's several mandates. Andre Mendez is the Commerce Department's Chief Information Officer, speaking with Federal News Network's Jason Miller. Mendez retires from the federal government at the end of the month. You can find more episodes of Ask the CIO at federalnewsnetwork.com. 57 past the hour. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Temin. For the latest updates, stay with federalnewsnetwork.com or follow us on Facebook and LinkedIn. Up next, the top national headlines from CBS News and The Federal Newscast. I'm Tom Temin.
And now, The Federal Drive with Tom Temin, sponsored by GEHA. Hello, and thanks for joining us on this Friday, December 8th, 2023, seven minutes past the hour. I'm Tom Temin. Our producers are Eric White and Peter Masurlian. Our digital editors, Daisy Thornton and Darris Lauderdale. Coming up in this hour of The Federal Drive, why cloud computing has little to do with saving money. Plus, an astronaut turned NASA executive calls it a career. Those stories and much more ahead during this hour of The Federal Drive. But first, the Biden administration's top management leader says it's time to retire the saying, good enough for government work. As the two-year anniversary of the Customer Experience Executive Order nears on December 13th, Jason Miller, the Deputy Director for Management at the Office of Management and Budget, challenged agency CX leaders at a White House event Wednesday to reject that line of thinking. He tells Federal News Network's Jason Miller in this exclusive interview, agencies should not be satisfied with the current delivery of citizen services and never say it is good enough for government work. We're serving people at their most important times, moments of crisis. These are life-changing events, and they have a huge impact on the trust that people feel for their government. I know that the people in the room today, I know that people in our federal agencies know the challenge it is to operate inside of federal government. It's harder than it is in other sectors, and the work is more impactful. But we know that that saying permeates. I hate that saying. I want to destroy that saying. I think it's a bunch of garbage when you see the work that people do and the challenges that they have to overcome to do that work. And some of it is about showing people each and every day, bringing IRS, bringing wait times down from 28 minutes to three minutes. Or when we launched last year, the student debt relief effort that was eventually struck down by the Supreme Court, we had 8 million people sign up over the weekend with a website that worked and only took a few minutes to sign up. So we we can do big things, and we can do it incredibly well. You talk about two things when you talk about the PMA and the anniversary of the uh, CX executive order. You talk about plumbing and then actually doing, actually putting points on the board. So let me start with the plumbing piece. Is there one or two things, or what would you point to as the, the biggest successes over the last two years around that plumbing piece, really moving from, hey, let's make sure when the toilet's flush, the water goes away, right? When the water turns on, you get you get a clean glass of water. What, what's what, what stands out to you? Look, plumbing is the thing that enabled us to have cities and enabled us to live in communities close together successfully over history. Um, I use that term because it is often the stuff that's not sexy. It's not the stuff that makes the press release, but it's the stuff that makes sure we actually deliver results, not just now but also tomorrow. I don't think you can point to one specific thing. To make this work, we need a combination of uh, leadership with clarity around what the outcomes are. We need the right talent in the right places inside of federal government. And then we need ongoing structures that make sure that this work carries forward. I highlighted one example, right? A place where we've tried to create an enterprise-wide approach is on federal financial assistance, where you have, even inside of agencies, very different approaches in in terms of how agencies give out grants. And making sure that we have an enterprise-wide approach means we have higher return on the dollars that we're investing. We are more nimble because we can spread practices more quickly across agencies, and we can deliver repetitively on those results. It's not just a one-time action. You talked about some new high-impact service providers. You said there's four of them. That brings us to something to the effect of 39 or 42. 
talk a little bit about why those four, how they came about. Can you give me just a sense of why those versus anybody else? We, the federal government, are an enormous service delivery entity, right? We touch millions and millions and millions of people every single day in a broad array of both specific tactical things, but also in moments of crisis, an individual, a family, a business recovering from a disaster. We have been trying to expand to all of our service delivery entities to make them high-impact service providers. That means they're touching a large number of people, but also that they have the capacity to drive performance improvement on an ongoing basis. And that's about an annual repetitive process with focus, clarity, and enablement to bring best practices across multiple entities. One of the key things is that all of our high-impact service providers have to get to a point where they're measuring the customer experience. And we're trying to push on not just aspects of the customer experience, but enabling measuring trust at point of service. You heard Tanya Bradshaw from VA talked about VA's success on increasing trust of the veterans they serve. That's something we wanted to do across government. We want trust scores across all of our high-impact service providers to be over 75%. We have that in a number of places, but we still have a lot of work to do. You also mentioned about the President's Management Council, the Deputy Secretaries, uh, everyone getting a little bit of homework. Can you talk a little bit about it? Is that something that you guys have done in the past with other initiatives, or is this something specific around CX and the PMA type of priority areas? Yeah, it's been focused on our PMA areas. And look, coming out of every single PMC meeting, uh, we meet just about every single month uh, and have since we stood up the PMC in June of 2021. That first meeting is when we began the conversation about building the first PMA, and we built it together. So the PMC feels a lot of ownership over this, not just that they're being told what to do, but that they created it, right? We are the architects of the PMA along with our teams. So that notion of making sure that we're getting the ball rolling on specific things that we're trying to bring to scale or making sure that we're taking our best practices in one place and sharing it very quickly across has been the focus of our challenge card effort inside of those PMC meetings. They're tactical, specific things that agency leaders can bring back to their teams to make sure that they're getting done and can accelerate our progress on the PMA. When people talk about customer experience, they usually are now combining it with total experience, TX, right? Which includes employee experience and citizen or, or customer experience. When you talk about that employee side, what are some of those things that you all are starting to focus on differently or new for 2024? Across our focus on the workforce, right? Stepping back, and I say this all the time, the single most important asset to the federal government is, is the federal workforce, those are the individuals that are actually doing the work and getting stuff done and delivering results for the American people. That's true of any large organization. Your people are your most important asset. And sometimes, too often, uh, we don't say that enough about the federal workforce. The unbelievably talented, dedicated, our most important asset. As we march into 2024, we want to uh, accelerate the efforts we're doing on hiring, especially in areas of talent. We've had a big focus on tech talent and AI and early career talent in particular. But we also want to really make sure that our employee engagement scores are continuing to rise. Engagement is associated with performance, right? We want our employees to have a good experience because it increases their drive to do a better job. It increases the performance of their teams. High-performing teams are highly engaged. We are at an all-time high on employee engagement this year. I'm incredibly proud of that, but we can, we can still do better, and we know we have a lot of room for improvement. 
related to that, related to total experience, obviously the return to the office gets a lot of people hot under the collar. How are you kind of dealing with that piece? Because that could also impact employee experience, which could impact customer experience, which could impact engagement. Sure. I mean, we've been navigating through this and we navigated through it. We're in midstream of implementation of this, right? We had OMB issued guidance to agencies in April 2023 to drive a more balanced posture. Jeff Zients has been reinforcing that and making sure that we have leadership attention inside of all of our agencies. And sometimes there's a false argument that's happening. What we're trying to create is a balanced posture, right? We're trying to create a balanced posture so that we have well-performing teams while benefiting from the flexibilities that we know we can achieve. This is not, you know, a snapback. We know we're going to be more flexible than we were in 2019 prior to the pandemic. At the same time, some of our agencies don't have enough of an in-person presence where you can create those high trust, high culture, high performing teams that also are able to bring on a lot of new talent. It's a lot harder to bring on new talent when they don't get to learn from that in-person interaction. So it's just about getting the balance right, and that's what we're striving for, right? We've been pushing on agencies. I'm sure you've seen lots of reporting on that uh, in recent days, but getting that balanced posture right, which in general, based on where agencies have been setting goals, is making sure that for office, for headquarters, for certain kinds of functions, we're flexible, but at least 50% of the time or more is in-person. Jason Miller, Deputy Director for Management at the Office of Management and Budget, speaking with Federal News Network's Jason Miller. Yep, two people, same name. Check out our story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Still to come, an astronaut turned NASA executive calls it a career. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Tammen here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. 